He always made it look easy, with a humble nature on the basketball court and off. Looking back, it was no wonder, because he had a humbling childhood. A highly recruited player out of South Bend, he followed his older brother to IU in Bob Knight's second recruiting class, and went on to become the least publicized starter on IU's undefeated national championship team in 1976. But he went on to have a seven-year professional career, including five NBA seasons that included a brief stop with the Pacers. He did like the athletic gifts of other players, but his unselfish and disciplined approach to the game kept him going longer than many would have predicted. Now he owns and operates the Indiana Basketball Academy, where he helps teach the lessons of basketball and life that he learned as a child to kids of all ages. I'm Mark Monteith, and I'm going one-on-one with Tom Abernathy. This is One-on-One with Mark Monteith on 1070 The Fan. Brought to you by Georgetown Market, Indy's family-owned natural food store since 1973. Movie Time Video Productions, they make your memories last forever. Pita Pit, have you had your pita today? Okay, today One-on-One comes to you over the phone lines with an Indiana University basketball legend, uh, a man who just 35 years ago was part of uh, one of the legendary teams of college basketball at IU, the undefeated team that won the national championship in 1976, Tom Abernathy. And Tom, you're from South Bend, uh, growing up in South Bend. Did you come from an athletic family? I mean, had your dad been an athlete? Were there a lot of athletic influences growing up there? Yeah, South Bend's a great was a great place to grow up, Mark. Athletics with Notre Dame being right there was was huge, and just like probably every town uh, for that matter, playing little league baseball and you know playing all types of sports growing up. I had a unique background with my dad. He loved golf, and and he was in the business world for you know several years, and. When he is in his late 30s, he decided to uh, leave Studebaker Corporation and uh, take a job at uh, Studebaker Golf Course to be the golf pro there. So ah. uh, golf was uh, introduced to me at a young age, and, and I grew to love love going out to the course with him and playing golf. So I, I played all sports, but uh, my dad had a huge influence uh, on me with uh, with golf and and uh, you know, obviously basketball, too. Do you still play a lot of golf? You know, I probably play about 10 to 15 times a year. The Indiana Basketball Academy, where I work, uh, and you know, I own that facility, uh, we have, believe it or not, uh, more than 20 camps in the summer, and I really feel like I need to be there. And so, oddly enough, uh, you know, I'm in the gym more uh, in the summer than I am out on the golf course, but I I play enough to you know be okay you know competitive I guess. Did you play other sports throughout high school besides basketball? Golf and basketball were the only sports I played at St. Joe. I had a great coach, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But he you know he kept us fairly busy year round you know with basketball and you know Bob Donawalt's his name, but yeah. I didn't uh, didn't play the other sports, although you know up until high school I 
you know, I played, you know, just about everything. Yeah, and Bob Donawald, of course, went on to IU to be an assistant coach to Bob Knight. At what point uh, did you start taking basketball seriously? Was it at a young age, or did it come along later? I actually loved um, playing. I have an older brother. Uh, his name is Spike, and he five years older than me. You know, I'd go out and, and tag along with him, and, and there's just a lot of playing, shooting baskets and playing basketball in our neighborhood. And so, you know, as a young, really fairly young guy, I just played. And the, my earliest memory of being on a formal team, I was, you know, I think third grade. And, and that was fairly early back in back in the day. Absolutely, yeah. But, um, you know, I just would go around the neighborhood shooting and playing. So I'd, I'd say my neighbors would say, you know, I, I put in a good amount of time as a young, a young boy. Yeah, uh, and you certainly grew up at a time when the high school tournament was a big deal. And uh, obviously in South Bend, like many other places, uh, did it get into your blood then through the tournament? Or was it from Notre Dame games that you got attached to it? Uh, you know, what players or teams inspired you to work at the game? A lot of what you just said was true. The, the high school influence that I had uh, interestingly enough, was South Bend Central, and the player, the very first player I remember idolizing was Mike Warren, and I had, uh, my brother Spike went to, to Central, and so I'd go to those games as a, a young kid, and Warren uh, wore number 44, and I remember taking a sweatshirt and magic marker and putting, you know, his, his number on it. Yeah. So that that was a huge influence. Just getting to watch those teams play. Um, I didn't follow St. Joe that closely, you know, growing up because I, I had always expected to go to to Central, but I would have only made it through two years before you know Central had closed. So that's when I made the decision to go to St. Joe. But I went to tons of Notre Dame games, and Austin Carr was just at his best. I mean, he he was a great player at Notre Dame. A lot of great. Uh, teams that Notre Dame had, so I, I, I got plenty of basketball, you know, in both those venues. For yourself, coming out of St. Joe, what was your recruiting experience like? Uh, what schools did you visit? Uh, what schools did you, you know, come close to attending anywhere but IU? Uh, well, it's interesting. My recruitment was uh, well. Let me back up. My my mom and my dad both had attended Purdue, and I think each of them maybe went there for two years so Purdue was certainly my mom's uh, preferred school uh, for me to to go to but I wasn't honestly thinking about scholarships and all of that as I was in high school and in the recruitment was a little bit different in that the heavy recruiting happened you know pretty much your senior year Uh, coach Knight uh, sent me letters as well as probably over a hundred schools did, uh, just you know, letting you know that they're on the map and they'd love to, you know, talk at some point. Which just generic letters, but Coach Knight, you know, sent a ton. But really, the the toughest are the schools that did the best job. I should say, recruiting me as a high schooler was really was Purdue, uh, Memphis State, Iowa State. Uh, I had a trip planned to go to Georgia Tech and Florida, you know. So those were the the schools I really considered, and I I, I always really did want to go to IU. My brother 
you know, attended IU. I told you he's five years older than me, and mm-hmm. so I spent some time down there. But at the time, I really didn't think IU was, you know, a, a huge possibility. But, you know, as my senior year unfolded and Coach Knight got more and more interested and certain guys didn't take scholarships that he had offered, and I think that's what gave me an opportunity. Ah, do you know who those players were who said no that um, opened up the chance for you? You know, Albert Fleming was one of them. Albert and I were on the All-Star team together. Uh-huh. He's from Michigan City. He went to Arizona. Uh, I don't know the other anyone else, but you know, all along, Coach was uh, Coach Knight was uh, up front saying, you know, he, he they were interested, but uh, it was it was funny when when uh, he did come to offer me a scholarship. My mom was was really giving him a hard time, saying, "Boy, all these other schools sure seem to uh, want my son. How much do you really want you know my son Tom to come and play for you?" <laughs> and Coach Knight had. The, one of the you know he just had a great fond memory of of how my mom grilled him you know during you know those those few minutes or maybe half an hour yeah so, but, at what point during your senior season did he come up with an offer finally was it during the season or um it's you know I, actually I was in the middle of my visits you know to other schools and really Purdue was really pushing me pretty hard to to make a decision. I think Fred Schaus was just, you know, just starting there, yeah. The opportunity to be the coach, and so it was late, fairly late in the game. You know when it, when the actual scholarship offer came, and so I canceled trips, you know, to Florida and in Georgia Tech because of uh, you know Coach Knight has a pretty good way of of making it clear that you have an opportunity. You know, why wouldn't you want to take it? Come to IU and yeah. and and I, I it's where I really wanted to go and yeah. so I made a quick you know a quick decision once I had that opportunity. Abernathy winds up a member of Bob Knight's greatest recruiting class and a starter on his greatest team after he endures the childhood tragedy when one on one continues. Welcome back to One on One. I'm Mark Monteith. Today's guest, former IU forward Tom Abernathy, seemed to glide through his college and NBA careers, but they were preceded by a childhood event that would have sent a lot of kids down the wrong path. He'll explain. You're in the same recruiting class as Quinn Buckner, Scott May, Bobby Wilkerson. Uh, did you have any idea, you know, what you were getting into with those guys? Did you know? how good they were, and what kind of recruiting class that was? You know, to answer that, I mean, I at least knew that we were ranked. I mean, I never, you know, way back then, they weren't talking like in, in this day and age, you know, that they're always talking about recruiting classes. But, you know, I was told that it, our class was the number one recruiting class of that recruiting season. So, you know, I, I figured the players were good. I didn't know an awful lot about Scott and Quinn. Now, Bobby and I played on the all-star team together, but, um, you know, I, I, I soon found out how good they were and I would uh, give coach Knight, you know, a huge amount of the credit for taking, you know, the raw abilities and obviously blending them to, to be successful. Yeah. And you guys have an incredible four year run there. 
with the national championship in 1976 in an undefeated season. Uh, you were, I don't know, I guess is it fair to call you a role player? I mean, you weren't the leading scorer. You were there for rebounding and defense. And I think, what did you average, about 10 points a game as a senior? Yeah, that's that's right. I, I, I was actually the third leading scorer on the team, and, and that's what was amazing about that team. You know, I wouldn't say I was the third best player on the team, but just the way the roles that we all had to play, uh, you know, it worked out that way. But I take my hat off to Quinn and Bobby, you know, two unbelievable basketball players who were both number one draft choices. Uh, both of them averaged in single single digits. And yeah. It just showed a lot about their character and, and willing to, you know, do what was needed for the team and, and putting their personal glory uh, off to the side. Yeah, so. and of course Kent Benson is the other starter. He comes along a year later uh, behind you, and that kind of put everything together. You had every position filled that way. Was it at all difficult for you to accept your role? You know, being, uh, you said the third leading score, but they weren't exactly running the offense through you. You know, you guys had a great balanced offense, but was there any difficulty at all in kind of fitting well, in? The trait that my mom instilled in me was to be humble and to just work hard and, and do, you know, what's asked or, or even do more than what's asked. And so, you know, I was, I guess you'd call me a blue collar worker, just doing the dirty work and doing the little things. And so when you're a blue collar worker, uh, you're not expecting much of anything. You're just out there to do whatever you can do to help your team. And, and, you know, I, I was that, you know, that was just the way I was, but, you know, the whole team had, had that same mentality. I think everyone was willing to do what it took, but, you know, again, I wasn't as talented as uh, several of the guys on the team, and so you know, I was just happy to be you know in that role. And I was the the new starter. If you look back at the year before, that you know, I was the seventh man. I was behind Laz, who was the super subs uh, six man, and uh, Steve Green, who was you know an unbelievable player. So you know, coming in as the the outsider and just trying to fit in you would never hear a complaint from me. What was your highest scoring game at IU? I'm going to say it could have been 22 points, maybe. 22. I was thinking low 20 somewhere. Yeah, I, I really, it's either 22 or 24 because this was the same as in the NBA um, or, you know, somewhere in that in that range. It's not unusual to talk to somebody who played for Bob Knight who had kind of a rocky road with him, had the reps and downs, maybe thought about transferring at one point, got really angry with him at some point. I've always had the impression that you were always okay with him, that everything went pretty smoothly for you. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's a perfect description of my relationship with him. I um, again, I had some good training, you know, certainly my parents and actually my dad died when I was, uh, 10 years old. Oh, I didn't know so, that. Yeah. So my mother was, was obviously, you know, a huge influence in my life. And, you know, I was, I think pretty well prepared to get along with just about anybody. And, you know, I think my high school coach, again, coach Donald was so much like coach Knight, you know, I, I learned pretty quickly uh, when a coach, you know, is saying something that needs to be done. That just do it. It's a lot easier to just do it, <laughs> and they'll try to uh, test them. And so I think I. 
fit right in with probably a, a, a player that would be would be successful, you know, with a tough coach that like Coach Knight could be. Yeah. What caused your father's passing at that young age? He actually uh, had a heart attack. Uh, I think he was like 40 years old, 41 years old, and um, he smoked. Uh, as I look back at maybe some some causes and. And I guess the other unfortunate thing is, is he he's just that much older. Like if if someone at forty today would have probably what he had, I would think the technology and the the abilities that are you know in the the physician uh, realm could probably have saved his life, and he'd probably be going and going and going. Yeah. But so you know, obviously not a pleasant situation for for me as a, a young kid and that's just the way god had our lives planned out well you mentioned the nba draft you are a third round pick of the los angeles lakers uh first of all were you expecting to get drafted well uh, until i made the all-tournament team in the final four and you know really through the the you know the whole tournament the nba wasn't on my radar screen at all and so I think as our, obviously as the team kept doing well and as I had some decent games to get a little bit more recognition, you know, all of a sudden I was thinking, you know, that maybe there is a chance. And so as it turned out, Pete Newell was a very good friend of Coach Knight's and spent quite a bit of time with our team and speaking to our team and encouraging us and stuff. He was involved with the Lakers and as it turned out and I wasn't aware of all of this but you know I think he had a huge influence on them uh drafting me I was the 43rd player picked that year and it was like wow this is awesome but I still you know wasn't you know expecting that you know from being picked the 43rd player to you know playing in an NBA game was a long way to go so I was invited out uh, to L.A. in the summer league. They they had a great summer league back then. And um, one of the weirdest things, Mark, as I'm thinking about this right now, Don Nelson was just finishing his NBA career. And in the summer league, he was refing. He was attempting to be a ref with... Uh, you know, in the, I guess, in the NBA. And so he was one of the refs during Wow, I didn't know that. That. That, was a, that was a weird memory. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it, it, I played it well enough, you know, in the, in the summer league to get invited back to, to training camp. Now you joined a Lakers team in the 76-77 season. I looked at the roster. This is quite a collection of players. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, of course, is the uh, focal point of the team, but it's also guys like... Kazzy Russell, Lucius Allen, uh, Kermit Washington, Matt Calvin, who had been an ABA player, Bo Lamar, Johnny Newman. Uh, it was it was really an interesting group, and you guys won your division. I think you were fifty three yeah, and twenty nine. Best record in the NBA, Mark. It was uh, unbelievable. It was Kareem, and then a bunch of either old guys or you know rookies, and you know just guys that weren't heralded. And again, we had the best record in the league, and we made it to the finals that year in the West. And Portland beat us, who went on to win. We really, I think, overachieved and surprised a lot of people yeah. that year. And 
And the coolest thing for me was Jerry West being the coach. I was going to ask you about that. What was that like? Well, you know, obviously he's a legend and, you know, was someone I, you know, really admired and looked up to. And so he's the coach, and he was an unbelievably smart basketball player. And I think what he saw in me was someone who, you know, was had learned the game from, you know, Coach Knight playing for him for four years. And, you know, what I did bring to the table was being, you know, I guess smart or, you know, using – the gifts I had to the maximum and, you know, with Kareem as, as a guy inside and probably one of my strengths was being a good passer. You know, I think uh, Jerry West saw that I could bring something to the table that would, would help the team. So I think I was lucky to have Jerry as my coach because he, you know, believed in me and in the professional game, you, you know, your coach is the one who makes the decisions, whether you stay or you go and, and, uh, so I, I owe an awful lot to Jerry for uh, the opportunity. Yeah, you had a good rookie year. You averaged nearly 20 minutes a game, uh, 6.3 points and 4.2 rebounds. Were you at all surprised by your success and how much playing time you got? You know, it, it's, it was amazing how well-prepared I was playing for Coach Knight and, and then getting into the NBA. It was like having played – at the highest level in college and, you know, with the pressure that was associated and, you know, the, the work ethic that, you know, I, I had to bring to the table to, to be able to survive, you know, the NBA was just like a continuation almost of, you know, how I had been, you know, prepared, you know, through my experiences at IU. And I didn't have huge goals or like, man, I, I want to start or I want to, play 20 minutes a game or whatever but you know as everything worked out that season I I played a ton and I uh, was able to you know just have a, a great rookie season uh and certainly better probably than I had anticipated but again you know I didn't anticipate even making the team or doing much of anything so I think anything that would have happened was going to be a, a real positive. Abernathy recalls playing with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and his brief employment by the Pacers when one-on-one continues. Back on one-on-one, I'm Mark Monteith. Tom Abernathy began his NBA career with the Los Angeles Lakers where he became well acquainted with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and he ended it with the Pacers where he played on the franchise's first team to reach the NBA playoffs. But he still had a couple of seasons left in him. Did you like Jabbar? I love Kareem. Uh, Kareem's locker was right next to mine both both seasons, and he was one of the hardest-working players. Um, in practice, he would never take a shortcut. He never demanded special treatment and sitting out. He just worked at it, and he you know, played, and he was uh, just a great teammate uh, as far as, you know, what you could count on and how consistent he was, you know, from a just a scoring standpoint. And defensively, I mean, I had to guard the, you know, Dr. J's and Larry Bird's and all the great players of the day, and it's so comforting to have a guy behind you 
uh, like Kareem, you know, so I can force my man <laughs> towards him. And <laughs> then I went to Golden State, and I had Robert Parrish behind me for oh. two years. So had a couple of good guys to to back me up and make me look maybe better than I, I really was. Yeah. By the way, what was your salary as a rookie in the NBA? I made, um, I would say, under forty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And you know, the the sad part of it, I became friends. Um, with Donnie Walsh, uh, he was an assistant coach w- when I was in the league, when he was in, in Denver, and so we knew each other a little bit then, but when he got to Indiana, and I had, you know, we were in a meeting together and talking, he, he looked up at me and he said, man, you were a great player, and he said, you know, you know you'd probably be earning between you know, I think at that time it was probably between a million and a half and two million dollars a year. <laughs> you know, the player that you were, I he said you just were born you know too early. Yep. So, but yeah, I didn't make a lot of a lot of money really as an NBA player. Talk, talking about Kareem, I have a memory. Your rookie year with the Lakers, you came in to play the Pacers, and it was right after IU's win streak, uh, re- regular season win streak, which was really long at the time was ended in a loss at Toledo early in the season. And I, I don't know why I remember this, but you're in the locker room after the game and Kareem walks by you and kind of sings out, Toledo, you know, because IU had just lost there as a way of teasing you. So he was obviously aware of what was going on in college basketball and had enough of a relationship with you to joke about it. Yeah, he, he had a great sense of humor. And one of the funny things, you know, I went to Golden State after being with the Lakers and Kareem, uh, when he would see me after I went to Golden State, Susie and I had twins, and he was so impressed. Like he would joke me, he says, "Man, you got twins!" After you know, and he was you know just laughing like I was the man or something because I, <laughs> he was able to produce twins. So, so similar to that Toledo thing, I think he had that little joking streak. Yeah. And one other little story about Kareem when he was turning 30 years old he invited a handful of our his teammates you know that were were on the lakers with him and i was invited to the roxy which was a pretty trendy club pretty you know fun place for the hollywood set to go but he invited i can remember don ford and myself and maybe one or two other players were at this party and um i met jack nicholson there that was the uh-huh. first time and probably only time I met Jack Nicholson, but it was cool to be standing there talking to, you know, Jack and, you know, just being at this party. It, it, there couldn't have been more than 30 people at it. You know, it wasn't a big old thing. And years pass, and there, I'm watching something on CNN all of a sudden, and it's a celebration of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's 40th birthday. I think it was 10 years later. And it was probably a thousand or fifteen hundred people at a big you know just a huge party in LA and I mean it it just I couldn't help but laugh to you know see how far Kareem had gone in his personal life where (laughs) he was so sort of sheltered and quiet and you know didn't want to you know open himself up to tons of people and then seeing this like man Ten years go by, and, and he's you know really hitting you know the Hollywood scene. Yeah, it's no longer thirty people at his birthday party, right? No, exactly. It was <laughs> it was it was sort of fun to yeah. look back at. 
Uh, well, you're after two years with the Lakers, you play three years in Golden State, and then you're traded to the Pacers from Golden State. This is the 80-81 season, and um, that's actually... Well, can I correct you a little bit? Sure. I wasn't necessarily traded because I got waived. I oh, got okay. released right uh, about the 10th of December or something like that, and within... Ten days or eight days, I was uh, able to sign as a like a free agent with with uh, the Pacers. But okay, yeah, I should have known a, that. Just a little clar- uh, clarification. Yeah, you played uh, twenty nine games for the Pacers that year, uh, averaged about nine minutes and two points a game. So, you know, it's not going as well there as it had in L.A. But that, that is the year the Pacers made the playoffs for the first time in the NBA. Uh, played a three game series with. Uh, actually, a two-game series with Philadelphia it was best of three back then in the first round. But um, in your brief time with the Pacers, and this is when Jack McKinney is the coach, uh, any memories stick out from that brief experience? Oh, I I was thrilled to get back to Indianapolis. You know, I uh, you know California the first you know four years of my career, four and a half, and so to have the opportunity to come back to to Indiana was just you know I loved it and. We had a great team, and like you said, to, to be a part of that first uh, NBA playoff team, you know, was was very such a great fond memory. And uh, as uh, you know, the role I had on that team, you know, I had a few games I probably contributed, but you know, I was definitely just there to to help as an insurance policy as much as anything. But just. You know, McKinney was, I think he was a coach of the year maybe that year. He was. He actually was, yes. Did a great job. George McGinnis I became uh, very good friends with. And um, Jerry Seasting and I developed a tremendous, you know, friendship. So, I mean, there are so many positives. I mean, every player wants to play a lot. And so when you're just playing a role that you don't play much, it's, it's not nearly as fun. But... You know, all things considered, to get to be able to get back to Indiana and uh, you know to to play you know on a team that that got things started for the Pacers, you know, it, it very very fond memories of it. So, did, were you released by the Pacers the following season, or not? you know, what's weird is I wasn't released. I I got a uh, my agent was Larry Fleischer, who is the head of the NBA Players Association, and. He got a deal for me over in Italy to play, and right before I was ready to hop on a plane, my wife and I to go over there, the Pacers came to the table and and offered a a contract, and just, you know, it was like almost days before we were ready to leave, and and so we decided to stay the course and and go over to to Italy to play, so, Mm. uh, but yeah, I I think uh, the opportunity was offered, and but you know, there's so many moving parts in, you know, especially back then, that we just felt going overseas was the sure opportunity that that I had to continue, you know, my career. Yeah, and you played what two years in Italy? Yeah, actually, the I played the first year was an unbelievable year, you know, over there, and then the second year, at right at Christmas time, I had I problems. I got conjunctivitis, this uh, pink eye, and they gave they wanted to shoot me with a needle in my eye, in both my eyes, and I said that just seems pretty extreme for pink eye. And so, 
the alternative was they gave me these eye drops, and the excess of the eye drops that they had me take, you know, over a course of a week, wore away the cover of my eye, and so I could not see the scoreboard clearly. I could; it was just unbelievable. My uh, what happened, and so I. And, but I continued to play for probably four or five games when I just could barely see. And so that's how my career ended. Actually, it was right at the right at Christmas time. I was actually paid. You know, they paid the rest of my contract. You know, but they realized I couldn't couldn't continue playing. Did you enjoy living in Italy? And were you know were the games enjoyable? Uh, at the that games time? were unbelievable. It was. I think I was the second or third leading scorer in the, in the country. I think I in the twenty two, twenty three points a game. I mean, it was like going back to high school. I was going to say, yeah, you were the star again, huh? I know it was. It was fun to do that and. Our team set a record in Italy for the number of wins. Um, so we had actually Mike D'Antoni's team uh, knocked us out of the playoffs uh, that first year. Mm. So it was it was just a, a great experience. And uh, the second year, like I said, very unexpectedly, you know, took another turn. But we had uh, our twin boys were two years old at the time, the first year, and you know, or three. So we were busy, you know, raising young kids and playing, you know, working hard. It was almost like college again. You know, you practice, you know, four days and then you get a game. And, uh, you know, it's a lot different than the NBA lifestyle as far as, uh, you know, all the games. It's just a lot more practice. But it was it was fun. I, I just really had a, a lot of great memories. And, you know, it just God sort of redirected, you know, my path and, ended the basketball uh, there uh, with, with my eye problems. Abernathy concludes his playing career and establishes himself in a different corner of the basketball world. And he reveals another challenge from his childhood that shaped his life when one-on-one continues. We're back on one-on-one. I'm Mark Monteith, talking today with former IU basketball star Tom Abernathy, a member of the last team to go through a college basketball season undefeated. Abernathy uses the lessons he learned from the loss of two family members to teach kids today at his basketball academy. Here's the story. Were you ready to be done with basketball? I mean, could you walk away from the game kind of on your own terms and thinking, I've had enough of it, I'm ready to move on to something else, or was it kind of heartbreaking to have to stop playing? Yeah, you know, I was having the preparation that I had from my my mother and just growing up being, you know, thankful for whatever I got, not expecting too much. You know, I, I every year was, was, I was thankful for, and so when I did, you know, have the great year over in, in Italy, it was encouraging like man i can still play and so i was still playing at a high level and then this you know this injury or this eye problem came but you know oddly enough i was it was like okay this is you know i need to come back to the united states and i went to the iu med center and uh, this doctor dr wilson i think was his name he gave me some 
extended wear contacts, which were just brand new at the time, and I think I wore them for 30 days at a time. And he said, I just want to pat down uh, the cornea, which the, it's sort of a lot of technical stuff. But anyway, just probably in six months, you know, I was seeing, you know, 95 percent. You know, it's just back to just about my normal sight. Oh, good. Um, anyway, it was just, you know, I didn't really have huge regrets, um, you know, right away. And I guess as I looked back at it, it was like, man, it had been nice to keep going. But I, I had played seven years of pro basketball, and that was, you know, certainly more than was on my original radar screen. Do you get an NBA pension? Yeah, you get, uh, if you play for, I think, three, three years. Three, I think, you yeah. Get one. Yeah. And uh yeah, so that that was that was that was a, another little benefit of playing. Yeah. And especially when you I mean I did make more than $40,000 a year once I signed as a free agent with Golden State. I, <laughs> I won't tell you the numbers, but <laughs> but you know, a little bit of pension money is uh, was always ni- a nice benefit as well. Sure. Well, I think the pension is what a little over $300 uh per month for every year you played. You know, so what? Yeah, I think that's about what. Yeah, what, we're talking sixteen hundred dollars a month or something like that. I mean, it's you know, you don't have to tell me what the amount is, but that's a nice little bonus. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was thrilled and thankful, and and really, as I look back at the whole Laker experience, you know, having a, a small salary, but we had that uh, run, you know, getting to the finals of the Western Conference, and the bonus money that we got from playing with. You know, getting you know, our playoff share, um, I was able to put that into a, a condominium that my wife and I, our first house that we bought out in L.A., and we held on to it for 15 to 20 years, and it was just a great investment. So there, there are some good little perks. Yeah, so you benefited from the L.A. housing boom, huh? Yeah, more so than the uh, NBA uh, salary. Uh, (laughs) That's tremendous. One way or another, I was uh, was able to enjoy the fruits of the labor. Yeah, yeah. Tom, tell me about the Indiana Basketball Academy. I know I used to go out there with the Pacers. Uh, They used to practice out there when Market Square Arena was not available, and I know that keeps you busy pretty much around the clock now. Yes, um, and that's that's when I r- recalled you know my times with Donnie Walsh and you know he was looking for a spot that they could call home when when uh, when Market Square had uh, you know the ice events or concert or or the circus or whatever. So the Pacers you know signed a couple of year contract to come and practice there. So that really helped us right at the beginning uh get started and get some exposure uh with the pacers being in there and um i was in commercial real estate after my you know injury in the in italy uh for about 10 years and i just felt that i had something more uh to do with with athletics than you know the way things ended and um I became a Christian during that period of time, and and it's just like you know I wanted to use the gifts that you know God had given me, you know, to benefit more people than just you know selling real estate and just making money. So that was 15 years ago, Mark, and uh, it, the business this year it's been our best year we've ever had, and you know it's just been a joy to to help introduce kids to basketball and help them you know realize that. 
you know, it, character is being developed moment by moment and play by play. And, you know, basketball is a great venue to, to help kids just sort of learn how to, you know, cope with life and, and realize that, you know, it's not easy, and but it can be awfully fun. And so that's that's really what we do at the uh, Indiana Basketball Academy. And I just feel blessed to get that opportunity every day. Thomas, I've kept you long enough, but as I think back over what we talked about, the one I'm just curious, you know, you talked about your dad dying when you were 10. That had to have a huge impact on a 10-year-old kid. I'm curious how you dealt with that and what that experience was like. And, uh, you know, because a lot of people, sure. it would it would be a major thing that maybe send them down a bad road or something like that. Well, this is maybe getting off a rabbit trail, but, you know, as I look back at, you know, not being – you know, the best role model as a IU player when I had the platform and playing in the NBA and, you know, being able to share my faith or do, you know, having a lot of positive things to do. But as I look at how my own kids have sort of, you know, been able to fill that role in from my faith being passed on to them and then them being able to make impacts in in their spheres of influence as, you know, great athletes in their own right. You know, it's just cool how that has worked out. But but back to my my dad, in these basketball camps that I mentioned that we have 20, this this past summer I had 22 week-long camps, uh, three-hour camps, five days a week. So we get lots and lots and lots of kids that come through there. And as I mentioned, character and things that aren't basketball related, you know, I, I just try to help kids understand what life is all about. And so my dad's death is one of two events that I share with the kids as I'm talking to them. And the other one is my, um, I've got an older brother, Spike, I'd mentioned, who went to IU, you know, five years older than me. Well, two years older than me, I had a brother named David, and David was born uh, severely retarded, and to the point that my parents had to put him in Muscatatuck State Hospital, um, and so he spent his entire life in that hospital, and I remember as a young boy traveling with my parents and my, my brother Spike to visit David and, you know, hang out at Muscatatuck with them, and uh, so, you know, I was, I think my dad died when I was 10 or 11, and David died when I was 14. Mm. So those two things, uh, to answer your question directly, sure, they were painful and they hurt, but honestly, the the impact of that has really hit me as I've gotten older. And as I look back and I see how, you know, God has worked in my life and how, you know, I got an opportunity to be on, you know, the, one of the more famous NCAA championship teams and, you know, the success I was able to have there and, and you know, at in the NBA and just the crazy things that really happened in my life and how, you know, if my parents, you know, I just admire my mom so much and my dad having a severely handicapped child and then having the guts to have another one, and that was me. You know, I was the next child born in that family. And yeah. Did those deaths, those tragic events, influence your basketball career at all? Did they create a desire in you to, I mean, did you channel emotions into the game or anything like that? 
You know, I, I, as, as I would look back at it, I don't think I was consciously aware of, you know, like, hey, I'm going to dedicate myself to be this, you know, great basketball player or whatever. But, you know, I think some of the traits, you know, that I'd mentioned earlier of being humble and being thankful for what I had, you know, I think a lot of those, those characteristics and the character traits were probably developed in me through seeing, you know, the real world, you know, that people do die, you know, people are born with severe handicap and, and I am healthy and I have opportunity to do things that, you know, and again, I wasn't all that honestly aware of that, but I think, again, with my mom's influence and helping me being humble and, and thankful and, and not trying to be bigger than anybody else, you know, I think that probably showed itself in, you know, how I responded, you know, with my college and in pro days and even high school, I would say. One-on-one with Tom Abernathy continues in a moment. We're back on one-on-one. I'm Mark Monteith. How about Tom Abernathy's story? You know, I was not aware of the fact he lost his father and an older brother during his childhood. He's always seemed to have a calm, serene nature that led you to believe his life had gone smoothly. I guess it's like that lyric from the Chuck Berry song. It just goes to show you never can tell. And congratulations to him for rising above it all and using his experiences to help kids today. I wasn't able to include it in this episode, but Tom was a first-hand witness to two of the most violent acts in the history of the NBA. One was teammate Kermit Washington's punch that nearly killed Rudy Tomjanovich. The other was teammate Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's punch that knocked out former IU teammate Kent Benson. Abernathy played just five seasons in the NBA, but you can't say they were uneventful. You can also say he was more than an innocent bystander throughout his professional career. He contributed. By the way, all five members of IU's championship team in 1976 played in the NBA. Abernathy, Scott May, Quinn Buckner, Bobby Wilkerson, and Kent Benson. So did two seniors from that ill-fated 1975 team, Steve Green and John Laskowski. No wonder those teams were good, huh? And remember, you can catch all the one-on-one episodes on our website at 1070thefan.com. Just click on the one-on-one window on the homepage and you'll have access to all the podcasts. And you can reach me by email at mark at 1070thefan.com. And I'll be back next week with another conversation with an Indiana sports personality right here on 1070 The Fan.